tried to think of something else about Mr. Mapes that was a funny story, and I failed you again. <laughs> my heart is my heart is warm. <laughs> you can open your Bibles today to Second Chronicles chapter thirteen. Second Chronicles chapter thirteen. Last week we studied King Rehoboam, who was the first king of the divided kingdom after Solomon's death. The north and the south had a kind of a break, and so the northern ten tribes decided, we're going to do our own thing, and a sort of rebellious man, Jeroboam, took over, and he took the kingship up north, and Rehoboam decided he was going to attack, and God said, no, don't attack your brothers and sisters in the north because this break in the kingdom was a judgment that God had planned. This week, we're going to study Rehoboam's son, Abijah, and we're going to see what he looks like and how he operates as a king. So we'll read a little bit in 13 here to get us started, and then we will... Actually, we'll just go ahead and pray, and then we will get started. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for your grace that you give us in life. Lord, I pray that today as we study King Abijam, we would learn from his life. We would see how he lived and how he acted, what he did that was good and what he did that was not so good. And I pray, Father, that he would be an example to us, uh, a negative example of, of stuff that we shouldn't be doing that doesn't honor you or characterize you, and then also a positive example where he does do the right thing that we would seek to emulate him. Father, we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You know, I can remember uh, working at a job, and my boss, I'd known him for years, and when I started there, he had a son that was like nine or ten, and, you know, six years later, his son turned 16. Man, I can do math, you can tell. Um, so when you get turn 16, you can get a job. And where I worked, they wouldn't hire anyone younger than that because there was equipment that was heavy. And so the boss's son finally gets hired at 16. And, of course, you know, there's the boss's son stuff that I'm sure you've experienced in some of your jobs. But what I wasn't prepared for was the incredible similarity between this young man and my boss. Now, I'd known my boss for a number of years. I knew the way he walked. I knew the way he talked. I knew his mannerisms. And his teenage son showed up, and you never would have had to tell me, hey, that's the boss's son, because the way he walked, like his, the way he took his steps was identical to dad. It was crazy. I never would have imagined that because I, I don't know. I'm thinking, I'm thinking I look like my dad. You know, we have mannerisms, and other people probably see it, but, you know, I don't. And I didn't have kids at the time. Now that I have a kid, I get that. You know, people come up to me all the time and they say, wow, your kid's doing that. You do that. And, oh, yeah, I get it. Or, or he'll be doing something that's particularly annoying. And I just, I'm, I'm in the middle of getting ready to scold him, and then it dawns on me. I do that. My poor wife has had to live with me all these years. And so the similarity between father and son. 
between mother and daughter, people you're related to. I just read an article this morning uh, as I was drinking my coffee. This is, this is for real. Um, a man, was he was adopted, and he grew up in a family, and at 16 years old, he's a really good football player, a coach from a college came to scout him and said, I really want you to come and play for my team. And so when he pick a picked a college, he ended up picking that college to work under that coach. That coach was a running back in his day. He taught this man to be a running back. And you know when you spend so much time with someone, you start to act like them? So you're not related, but you start to act like them. And so other team players started to joke, man, you and coach, you guys are like, copies of each other. You're like, you, you say this, he says this. You act like this, you almost look alike. You know how people start to look the same after a while. Well, the punchline of the story is that 20 years later, this adopted guy goes back to find out who his biological family is, and he finds out the coach was his dad. Like, this literally just happened a couple years ago, and the dad didn't even know. It was one of those stories where he didn't know, and he'd been given up for adoption, and People didn't know this, but they literally looked alike. They acted alike. They talked alike. And so today, I want you to have that picture in your mind as we look at Abijah. Because in some good ways, he looks just like his dad. But in some not-so-good ways, he looks just like his dad. Like father, like son, in the good and the bad. So we're going to actually be in two major sections of Scripture. We're going to cover all of chapter 13, because that covers a... a, a um, pinnacle event in in his life it's it's a really big deal it's there's a lot of fear it's a calamity about to happen and God walks him through that and and then the author of Chronicles just kind of stops the story there and says that was Abijah and it moves on so then we're going to go over to Kings and we're going to hear another element about his life the author of Kings gives us some more information about his life kind of like the Gospels you'll hear a story about Jesus in one Gospel and another writer will explain a little bit more or a different part of it. It'll be kind of similar to that. But there are three lessons, I, I think you could say, from the life of Abijah. Three lessons. The first lesson is that in times of weakness, you need to call on God or cry out to God. In times of weakness, you need to cry out to God. Secondly, in times of strength, you need to hold fast to God. Don't let go. You need to hold on more tightly in times of strength. And then lastly, you need to remember the legacy that you're leaving behind. You need to remember the legacy you're leaving behind. So call, hold fast, and remember. Call on God in times of weakness, hold fast to God in times of strength, and remember the legacy you're leaving behind. Let's read 2 Chronicles chapter 13. And notice how he calls on God. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah began to reign over Judah. Now, Jeroboam is the king in the north, so the king in the north who's not a fan of the south has been a king for 18 years, so he's probably got a secure reign up there. He's, he's put some practices in place, so they're giving him strength. Verse 2, and he reigned for three years in Jerusalem. Now that's in the south, in Judah. His mother's name was Micaiah. She was the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Now there was a war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Now remember, there had been war between the north and the south up to this point. Rehoboam had some scuffles with Jeroboam. And here, his son ascends the throne. Maybe Jeroboam thought, oh, new king, here's my shot to take back, to, to take those bottom two kingdoms and, uh, you know, have a whole country here just for myself. And so there was war, and Abijah goes out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 
400,000 chosen men. Now, I, that's a, not a bad army, I think. 400,000 soldiers and their valiant warriors? Hey, that's, that sounds pretty good. I, I, it sounds like to me like, oh, he, he's on sure footing here. This could go well for him. But notice what Jeroboam brings. And Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against him with 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. Imagine being a battle in a battle where you are outnumbered two to one. You as a soldier have to defeat two enemy soldiers and every one of your fellow soldiers has to do that or you're going to end up being overwhelmed by that force. Well, what if your friend next to you doesn't end up doing his part of the deal? Maybe now you've got four soldiers you have to defeat. These are not good odds. No statistician, no military general would ever say this is good unless you're on a very narrow pass like Thermopylae or something. But this is a huge plane. It's, it's a big open field. You can go one-to-one -one combat right there. So this is not going well. The text is making it clear. This is not a good situation for this new king, Abijah. Verse 4, Then Abijah stood up on Mount Zeramim, that is, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he said, Hear me, O Jeroboam, and all Israel. Now, what we want to pay attention to here is when Abijah confronts Jeroboam before the battle, what does he say? How does he interact with them? And what are the points he makes? A lot of times you're going to interact with the enemy. You're going to say, hey, these are my terms of peace. You know, this is how we could have peace. Or maybe you say, hey, don't do this. Or maybe you chide them and mock them. I don't know. Pay attention to what he does. He says, hear me, O Jeroboam, and all of Israel, now in verse 5 here, ought you not know? that the Lord, the God of Israel, gave the kingship over to Israel, over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, and the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord, and certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. The covenant of salt, let's talk about that. So I, we don't really use that kind of language today. Um, but when he says, hey, Jeroboam, don't you know that God gave the kingship to David and his family with a covenant of salt? What is that talking about? Well, back in that day, what did you use salt for? We still use it like this today. We usually, we use it to season our food. But if you want meat to last for a long time and you can't refrigerate it, what do you do? Salt it, and you smoke it, and you get beef jerky. And that beef jerky will last a long time without rotting or becoming degraded to where you can't eat it. And so when he says a covenant of salt there, he's saying a covenant that will be preserved into the future. The idea was this has been a hermetically sealed deal, and nothing's getting in to contaminate it. Or this, is, this deal is concrete. It's like a giant rock. Nothing's going to move it. He was saying this is a firm covenant. Why then, Jeroboam, are you trying to get in between God and his covenant partner? Do you see what Rehoboam or what Abijah is doing? Abijah is saying, you're coming to attack me and steal this thing I have, the kingdom, but don't you understand God gave this to my family line? Like, you're not fighting me. You're fighting God. That's a a really strong theological statement to say. And if Jeroboam was truly serving Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel, 
he would have heard this and realized, yep, this is wrong. I shouldn't do that. He maybe would have been like Rehoboam. When Jeroboam took off north and rebelled and Rehoboam was going to attack him, God said, don't attack them. Why? Because they're your brothers. They're your own family. And Rehoboam listened to God. Here, Jeroboam is not listening to God. He is out for his own. But it's not surprising that he's not listening to God. Look at what he's been doing up in the north in his country for the last 18 years. Verse 8. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David because you're great in number and because you have the golden calves with you that Jeroboam made for your gods? He says, you think you can defeat the Lord's army because you have a lot of soldiers and you have these golden idols that you made? Do you hear the audacity behind the tone in Abijah's, Abijah's words? He's trying to reason with Jeroboam and say, do you not understand what you're doing? You're coming against God, not just Abijah. You're coming against God, and you think you'll win because you have a big army and two golden statues? He goes on to say, verse 9, Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the people of the other lands? He's no, that's really important. He doesn't just add descriptions. Oh, you've knocked, you know, you've driven out the priests of the Lord, you know, the sons of Aaron, the Levites. When he says the sons of Aaron, that was important because Aaron's line was the priest that God ordained. So if you weren't of the line of Aaron, like uh, in your lineage, you wouldn't be able to serve as a priest. So again, do you see how he's going against God's prescribed way that Israel is supposed to do things? He says, you have driven them out. And verse 9, he says, have you not driven out the priests, the Lord, the sons of Aaron, the Levites, and the priests, and then made for yourselves priests of the peoples like the other lands? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are not gods. Jeroboam basically opened up the job application of priest to anyone. Maybe you worship Baal. Maybe you worship Asherah. Maybe any of those other Canaanite gods. As long as you bring me a young bull or seven rams, you can be my priest. In a political sense, Jeroboam was kind of savvy. Because the Canaanites that were still in the land probably would have thought, oh, well, I can be a part of this. It was maybe a good political move to appeal to as many people as possible. But it was a terrible religious move because he was destroying his commitment to God, his serving the Lord. He was not truly following God. And so now you had this mixed religion up north. You had elements of Jew, uh, Jewish worship that were prescribed. You had lots of elements of idolatry and paganism. And remember, it got so bad 18 years ago in Rehoboam's day that all the godly priests and Levites who wanted to serve the Lord said, I can't be a part of this. This is wickedness. And they all uh, transported them, or they, they all moved south into Judah. So he, he hasn't had an actual God-honoring worship for years. And now he thinks that he's going to come against God. And Abijah's trying to appeal to him, listen to yourself, Jeroboam. Do you not hear what you're saying? Verse 10, But as for us, the Lord is our God, 
and we have not forsaken him. The implication is that Jeroboam had forsaken God. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron and Levites for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening a burnt offering and the incense of sweet spices. Set out the showbread on the table of pure gold and care for the golden lampstand with its lamps that may burn every evening. All of that, every Israelite would have been aware of. That That was the prescription that Moses had laid down in the law that God had revealed him. This is the way the tabernacle was to function. And Abijah is just making his case. You have forsaken God. You've walked away from his worship. We haven't. What are you doing, Jeroboam? <clears throat> For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Now this doesn't change Jeroboam's mind. He should have heard all of this, and he should have been cut down in his conscience. He should have realized his sin, and he should have turned and repented right then. But he doesn't. He persists. In fact, he took advantage of Abijah's nice little speech there. And while he was speaking to him, Rehoboam, or Jeroboam had a plan he had set in motion. Now let's read about that. Verse 13, Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come upon them from behind. Thus, his troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front of them and behind them. If you are in, in the army, and you're looking out in this field, and you see this vast army that outnumbers you, and then you start hearing your fellow soldiers behind, where the reinforcements and supplies are, start freaking out and screaming in fear, and you turn around, and you see another army back there where your defenses aren't set up, where you are not prepared for a fight, what do you think right then? How do you feel? I bet you every soldier was scared to death, literally right at that moment. Um, any army commander would probably tell you that as, as, as far as strategies go, you're not in a good position because now you have to fight on two fronts, and that's much more difficult than just fighting on one front line. And so what do they do? And this is the key. When they are weak, when something dangerous is about to happen, when their life is beginning to fall apart and they are afraid, what do they do? They cried out to the Lord. Now, I know that if you're, if you're a Christian and life gets hard, sometimes, man, you know, something really bad will happen. And you will cry out to God, and you ask this question, man, why is this happening, God? If I flip over to the book of James in the New Testament, I can tell you one of the reasons we go through difficulties is because God uses that to test and to build our faith in him. And so here, these soldiers... This horrible thing is about to happen. They're scared to death, and what do they do? They cry out to God. I think God wanted them to cry out to him. In that moment, when they could have turned to any of the Canaanite gods, when they could have surrendered to the syncretistic worship of the north, they stood where they were, and they cried out to God. 
in my own life, I can look back and see times where it was very difficult. And those times, oddly enough, as I look back, between me and the Lord, they in some ways were some of the sweetest times of fellowship with God. I would pray, Lord, draw me near to you. Lord, I want to know you more. And then I go through this trial, and it's difficult, and it's painful, and I'm praying constantly. But as I look back, I was that, that was a really close time with me and the Lord. And I think that's part of how that works. As a believer, when you go through difficulty, this is what we should do. Pray. Constantly pray to God. Cry out to him. Don't stop and just, you know, ignore it or stop and try to escape it. But stop and cry out to God. And that's what the army did. And this was what God did for them. Verse 15 then the men of Judah raised the battle shout, so they didn't give up. They, they, were, they had faith in God, and they trusted him. And when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people, the ones from the south, struck them with great force, so that there fell the slain of Israel five hundred thousand chosen men thus the men of israel were subdued at that time and the men of judah prevailed because they relied on the lord the god of their fathers i want you to think of a time where you have had to cry out to god what was going on what was the intense difficulty you faced and then ask yourself did god take care of you so I did this myself. I thought, look back in my life, all the, you know, all the bad things that have happened that I could think of. When is there a time where God didn't take care of me? Well, I couldn't come up with one, but I did come up with something. I noticed that, you know, when there's a problem that presents itself, you might say, God, we do something about this problem. And what I noticed is many times God didn't actually take the problem away, but he allowed me to go through it safely and sometimes it was difficult sometimes it was the consequences of my own sin and he was more merciful sometimes it was something I was not prepared for and I still had to endure it but in the end it was okay and I actually grew through it so I do think that God does this but it doesn't always look like an army defeating another army but I can I can say with certainty I don't think God's ever let me down what about you do you think there's a time where God's let you down Sometimes, then maybe that's because we weren't crying out to him and we were trying to go in our own path. Jeroboam tried that. He tried to deal with this on his own, doing it according to the way he thought was best, and it didn't pan out for him. So when you're weak, when you go through difficulties and trials in life, cry out to God. That is the right thing to do. In fact, sometimes I think that's what God wants us to be doing, and maybe that's the lesson we need to learn. It's a lesson of trust. Now, what's the next big lesson we can learn as we study through the life of Abijah? Well, when he was weak, he cried out to God. And when we're weak, we need to cry out to God. But when he was strong, he should have held fast to God. And this is where, sadly, he's a negative example because he didn't hold fast to God. Now, it's a little... It's a little unclear here in Chronicles, but we'll see in 1 Kings. I, th I think you'll see. So he has this great victory, and he says 
and it says in verse uh, 19, it says, And Abijah pushed Jeroboam, or pursued Jeroboam, and took cities from him. Bethel with its villages, and Jeshana and its villages, and Ephron with its villages. Now, these were towns that Jeroboam probably took over, and he took them from Rehoboam earlier. And now, Abijah, not only did he survive the onslaught, he was able to take back some territory that had been taken from him, from his father, actually. And so then it says in verse 20, Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abijah. So this was the last major, uh, this was the high point of Jeroboam. He loses this battle and it's all down here for him from, him, for, him from now on. He, he never recovers his power. He, it doesn't go well for him. It says, and the Lord struck him down and he died. So that's the result for Jeroboam. Well, what was the result for Abijah? Verse 21, but Abijah grew mighty. And so it's this, it's like a flipped example. Like Jeroboam is ascending, he's solidifying his power. Rehoboam dies, Abijah takes the throne, and Jeroboam thinks, now's my chance. I'm going to grab the rest of the kingdom for myself. He's on the ascent. And here's Abijah. He just got put into the throne. Probably he's, his power's a little bit destabilized because he's a new king. And now this army twice the size of him comes in. He feels like he's going down. He calls on God. Jeroboam doesn't. And what happens? Jeroboam goes the opposite direction. He goes down. He never recovers. And Abijah actually gains strength. He gains political safety. He gains a measure of peace during his lifetime. And he's sitting pretty now. And what does he do with that? What does he do when God takes care of him? and provides for him and gets him through the difficulty. It says, and he took 14 wives. He took 14 wives. Like his grandfather and like his father, he multiplied his wives. Kings were not to do that. Not the ones in Israel. But what a temptation that is. You want to keep your power. You don't want your family line to lose it. You almost just got wiped out, so you better have as many kids as you can. It's a temptation. It was the norm during the day. Every other kingdom did this. And he decides he's going to do it maybe to keep himself safe. I don't know. Maybe because he got a little relaxed and thought, oh, I can afford the finer things in life. It says he took 14 wives, and he had 22 sons, and he had 16 daughters. And that's where it ends. It just says the rest of his acts, aren't they written in this book by the prophet Iddo? And if you're, a, if you're a, an observer of the life of Solomon, you know what it says about him. He had all those wives, and what did they do to his heart? They, they turned his heart away from the living God. And so here, Abijah turns to God. He seeks to obey God. God provides relief, and, and um, he saves the day, basically. And then Abijah doesn't follow God's commands. He turns to having more wives. And I think that signals the downfall of Abijah. So now flip over to 1 Kings chapter 15. 1 Kings chapter 15. And here's a very different picture of the life of Abijah. It's not that these are in conflict, by the way. It's just one author was highlighting one part of his life. The other author is highlighting a different part of his life. So in 1 Kings 15, it says this. 
And notice there's this huge victory that Abijah has, but in 1 Kings, it's, is it mentioned? Ask the question. So now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. And he reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Ma'akah, the daughter of Abishalom. Now, that's the same mother as Micaiah, but there are differences in the way you pronounce names and spelled names. And so a lot of people, you could say their name a couple different ways. And so it's the same person. It's not like he had a different mother in this story. And he walked in all the sins uh, that his father did before him. Why? And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. It doesn't even mention the victory God gives him when he turned to him in faith. It says this is the report. So my opinion is this, that victory must have happened early on in his, minute, in his kingship. He probably did ascend the throne. He probably faced the battle right away. He turned to God. God provided. And then what did he do? He was not wholly true to God. But God was wholly true to his covenant. Look at what it says next. Nevertheless, this is verse 4, For David's sake the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded all the days of his life, except the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life, and the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam, and Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. I think, like father, like son, we see that right now. Rehoboam had a great problem. He had this army that was going to attack. He trusted God. God provided for him and took care of him. And when things started going well, Rehoboam started getting a little more indulgent and a little more sinful. And so we talked that sometimes when life goes well, that's when we're the most at risk to walk away from God. Those difficult times, we cling to God. We call out to God. But when the strong, like when the, when the good times come, instead of holding more tightly to God's hand, it's like we kind of loosen up and we relax. I, I know, you know, if you have a small kid, you kind of know how this is. So I'll hold my son's hand. And uh, if we're in a parking lot and he knows cars are dangerous, they could hurt him. He, and he's not been there. He's looking around. He's holding tight to my hand. Or if he's in a situation where he doesn't know anyone, he's clinging close to me and holding tight to my hand. But, you know, you walk somewhere where he doesn't feel like there's any danger, and what, is, what does your kid want to do? He's, like, pulling you to get rid of you. He's trying to let go so he can go run around. Now, you as the parent know maybe where he's at that he thinks he's safe he's not. But he may not know that. I, I feel like that's a picture of us sometimes. It's a picture of Abijah and his father, Rehoboam. Things started going well, and they loosened their grip on God. The lesson we learn is that when, times are, when things are going well, we need to hold fast to God's hand. We need to stay in his word. We need to be more careful about our holiness and how we're living for him. We need to even more closely watch our hearts. What is drawing us away? Now that we're comfortable, now that we're not scared, now that we're not aching for God's uh, saving this, him saving us and keeping us safe, 
are we paying attention to those temptations? Because temptation doesn't go away just because your difficult life event did. Um, there's a book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. If you have a chance to read it, I would heartily recommend it. He, Lewis is an Anglican, so he'll talk about purgatory every now and then. But in that book, he, he talks about demons, like how de- he pretends like demons are talking and trying to strategize about how to tempt humans away from God. And many times the demons strategize about, well, how can we tempt them just a little so it's not difficult that they won't be aware that we're doing it and then they'll just give into it. They're always trying to tempt us when we're not looking. And I think we forget that. And I know that's just a story, but when you're facing temptation and you're in the midst of a difficulty and you're praying, you're kind of ready for it. And life's going well and the temptation comes, you may not be paying attention. So hold fast to God in times of strength. And lastly, the last lesson we learn is that you need to remember the legacy you leave. Remember the legacy you leave. Just like dad, Abijah, just like his dad, leaves a, a negative legacy of, the, of his son who follows. So you don't really see it in 15 here. The, the text transitions over in verse 9 and talks about King Asa. King Asa is the first good king in the south. We're going to read about him. We're not actually studying him. But what I want you to ask is, what kind of a kingdom did his dad Abijah leave to him? Like when Asa walks into the throne room and takes on the kingship, what did he have to deal with that his dad had left him? Verse 9, chapter 15, 1 Kings. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign in Judah. And he reigned for 41 years. Look at the longevity God gave him. His mother's name was Ma'akah, the daughter of Abi Shalom. Verse 11, And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as, his, as David his father had done. I should probably pause real quick here. David was not his father. David was his great-great-grandfather. But that's how the text talks about someone who is in your lineage. Now look at the things he had to clean up. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land. He removed all the idols that who had made? His father had made. Abijah called out to God, and then when things started going well, he built idols to other gods. He also removed Ma'akah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had set up an abominable image for Asherah. I, I would describe to you what that looks like, but it would be inappropriate in the context that we are in. It was that vulgar. It was a terrible Canaanite religion, and she was promoting it. The king's mother, in this case the king's grandmother, was promoting that kind of stuff. Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord sacred gifts of his father and sacred gifts of his own, silver and gold and vessels. Imagine your dad dying and you take over the kingdom and you're going to follow the Lord. You're going to follow his word. Now, he didn't have a Bible, but he did have the Old Testament. He had the the Torah, the law. And, And here you are, and there's prostitution. And there's idolatry. And your grandma 
has taken on a little bit too much authority in the kingdom, and she's given out some orders, and those orders are, hey, people, you should follow this idolatrous religion too. That is the legacy that Abijah left his kids. And this is the lesson I think we take from it. A lot of times when we're, do I do this or do I not? Oh, man, I know that's a sin, but I really want to do that. You know, no one's getting hurt if I do that. You know, we think of sin as affecting us and us alone. Abijah was thinking all about himself, but I don't think he was thinking about how his sin would affect others. He lived a life of sin, and he himself took on guilt that he had before God that he would have had to deal with. But his example bled out. It, it wafted out like a smell. Like, you know when someone's cooking food, and you're not near the cooking, but you're close enough that you smell the aroma? The aroma of the sins of Abijah wafted through the country. And a lot of the people said, that sounds like, that sounds like something good for dinner. I think I'll have one of those. His influence influenced the nation to sin. When we sin, when we're dealing with sin, often we're quick to ask, how is this affecting me? I need to change for me. But how often do we ask, who else am I influencing to walk down the path of sin? So I think the overall lesson here is that Abijah was just doing what his dad did. Rehoboam got in a bind and he cried out to God and God delivered him. He did okay for a while. He got relaxed. He started to get indulgent and God sent Egypt up to judge him. He repented. He humbled himself. He cried out for God and God saved him and only let a little bit of that judgment happen. Started going well, multiplies his wives, gets a little indulgent. When his son comes on the throne, he was doing exactly what dad did. Now, we may not have children, so you may, you may not have children. You may think, well, I don't have kids, so this doesn't, this doesn't affect me. But I would say that this obviously affects us as parents. If you have children, how are you behaving? What is your life's example for them? But as a Christian in a local body, this local congregation, this family of believers, how is your life influencing the rest of us in a good and godly direction? Or are you leaving a legacy that would cause people to consider walking further away from God than they normally would? Let's leave a godly legacy to our church family, to our, our, our physical families, and to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Lord, on the cross, you died to pay for our sin. And every sin that we've ever committed was dealt with at Calvary. So, Father, today, if you have raised a sin into our minds that you've convicted us of, maybe one that we were not aware of, Father, I pray that we would turn to you even right now and ask for your forgiveness, knowing that you will give it, that you will pour out your grace on our life to more than compensate for the sin that we've committed, to more than wipe it out forever on the basis of Christ's blood. But Father, I pray that we would not stop there, 
but we would continue to pursue you and continue to live in a way or desire to live in a way that pleases you. Father, thank you for today. I pray, Father, that today would be a day where we would devote our thoughts to you. We would spend time in prayer. We would spend time reflecting on the words that we've studied in your Bible right now. I pray that today would be a day that would spiritually strengthen us for the rest of this week. In your son's name we pray. Amen.